just want to open with a word of prayer, shall we? Let's bow our heads. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this time to worship and to hear your word spoken. And I pray, Lord, that you will touch my lips and cleanse me as I speak. May it be your words that come from my mouth and may it be to your glory and honor. And Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit will be here to open our, open our minds and our ears so that we may hear your word. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, again, I'm very pleased to be here this morning. Um, I tend to move around a little bit. I hope everybody can see the screen. Um, And this morning's message is going to be a very, if I can use the word, very Adventist message. Um, And so I don't know if any of you here are are not Adventists or just visiting. Um, And so there might be a few things that maybe you don't understand. And if if you don't, uh, maybe that's a good opportunity to ask somebody, ask one of the members here, one of the, some of the leaders, and, and help them exp- help explain uh, some of the things that we were talking about this morning. But I hope most of you will understand what we're talking about. Um, about, well, I guess this is most, almost 10 years ago. In, in the December of 2004, in the, off the island of Sumatra in the Pacific, there's a great earthquake, but nobody noticed. You know why? It was off the coast, deep in the ocean, right? And nobody noticed. And this earthquake happened, and the tourists all slept through it, the locals all slept through it. And in the morning, they woke up, and they came, and they saw that the ocean had receded way, way back. And I thought, wow, this is really interesting, right? And then, so they walked out onto the beach, and they could walk out further than they ever had walked out before, and they could see, you know, all the shells and starfish, and wow, this is really neat. And they walked out not realizing something, not realizing that the ocean had pushed back, and it was preparing for something terrible. And you see this lady up here, see she's running, she's running, why is she running towards the surf? Because her family was out there playing in the ocean, not realizing that this giant tsunami wave was about to hit. And you can see this giant wave, that's, it's pushing all the boats back, and it was rushing towards the shore. And all these people, there were many tourists, many people along the beach that were caught unawares that this giant tsunami was coming back at them. Unfortunately, these people didn't make it. The waters came onto the beach, came rushing through the little towns and villages that were along the shoreline, just wiped out everything in its path, and it was just utter devastation in its path. You know, people didn't realize the earthquake happened, but even worse, they didn't realize that the tsunami was about to come a short time later. About six years ago now, there was another kind of earthquake. It was a financial earthquake. And it shook the financial system to the core. You see, one of the very foundations of our economic system is one of real estate. You know, most of us, you know, we don't own a lot of money, we don't have a lot of stocks, but most of our wealth is tied up in our real estate, right? But there was this problem. This 2008, 
all, especially all around the world, maybe not so much in Canada, we've been blessed, we've been spared from a lot of the pain, but housing prices crashed. And what that did was it just shook the economic system. The banking system was shook to the core. Right? And it changed everything. But it, it, almost like people have forgotten about it. Right? It's been six years now. Everything seems to be OK. See? What happened was the system was about to crash. And then this man stepped in. His name was Ben Bernanke. He was the chairman of the Federal Reserve, the, the central bank for the United States. And what he did was, well, he said, well, we've got to stabilize the system. So he poured about $800 billion into the financial system to stabilize it. And it seemed to work. But he didn't stop there. See, he had another idea. He said, well, you know, we're, we're in a bit of an economic crisis. And what we'll do is we'll keep pouring money into it. Because his idea was that, this is what he said, higher stock prices will boost consumer wealth and help increase confidence which can spur spending. So he figured, OK, well, if you just keep pouring money into the financial system and the stock market goes up, then everybody will think everything's OK. right? And still, right now, people are so fooled. They think, oh, the stock market's hitting all-time highs. So everything must be OK. Is it? Well, we'll find out. You know, this is the US stock market here, this blue line. It's been going up and up and up. right? And this red line here is the US debt. And it keeps going up and up and up. Right? There's a real close correlation to that. One is very closely tied to the other. Of course, personal income and jobs, well, it hasn't really kept up, has it? No. This is not what we call a real financial recovery. Right? It's a bit of smoke and mirrors. But the worst part is that you know, every time it seems like this economic tsunami or wave is about to hit. They just poured more money at the system. And it's been prolonging the inevitable. We are here. This is the US stock market. We've seen the market go up and down a couple times. This is over the last 20 years, right? Uh, we saw the tech bubble, and it burst. We saw the real estate bubble, and that burst in spectacular fashion. And here we are, six years later, we're at the peak, and everybody's saying, oh, good times are here again. But most of us, at least those of us who want to face reality, realize that what goes up, it always comes down, doesn't it? And especially when it's built around debt. There is a financial tsunami coming. Right? The earthquake was back in 2008. And we've pushed back that wave by throwing tons and tons of money into it. Trillions of dollars of money has been thrown at the system to try and prolong the inevitable. But it's coming. Just like in 2004, that tsunami wave was coming. No matter what those tourists wanted to believe, that wave was coming. Right? But now we need to understand. Does the Bible predict a financial crisis at the end of time, right? Is this just something that happens? It's just economics and it's, you know, it's beyond our control? Or is there a biblical reason? Is there, because we're here, I'm not here to talk about money, right? We're here to worship God. And we're here to talk about the Bible. And what does the Bible have to say 
about this topic. I did write a couple of books. Um, this was my first book I wrote. It's called Financial Crisis and Bible Prophecy, and it was really geared towards our church audience. My recent book is Endgame Economics, and this one I've written for a broader Christian audience, and I've been able to share that with other Christians, and it's wonderful to see the, the power that uh, prophecy has. People want to hear it, want to understand what's going on, and, um, and I've been, you know, we've been, had some limited success at uh, being able to share this with other Christians, and they've been willing to accept the question is, what's God's message to us? And I, I, I'm always interested, because this has happened more, than, more times than not, you know, as I'm preaching, it's quite often that either the children's story or other testimonies tie in very closely with what I'm saying. So the, the, the uh, children's story this morning, um, you know, we didn't arrange this, but uh, it was about the prodigal son. And so here, uh, I, I want to talk about the prodigal son a little bit. Mrs. White, in the book's uh, Christ Object Lessons, talks about the prodigal son. And this is what she said. She said, the love of God still yearns over the one who has chosen to separate himself from him, and he sets in operation influences to bring him back to the father's house. The deceptive power that Satan exercised over him was broken. What influences did God set in operations for the prodigal son? There's two things. Two things happened. First thing we talked about in the story was all his money was gone, right? What was the second thing? A famine. Ah, So it wasn't just that he lost all of his money, but God wanted to make sure that he got the message. And what did he do? He sent a famine. He sent a famine to make sure that prodigal son got the message. Right? And so we're going to see what, what is God setting in operation? What influences is God setting in motion, perhaps, to bring us back? So we're going to try and understand what the Bible says about the financial crisis. And we're going to turn to our Bible. We're going to turn to a, a story in the Old Testament to help us understand. And it's a story that I think a lot of you are familiar with. It's a rebuilding of the temple, right? Remember that the Jews had uh, been captive in Babylon for 70 years. And according to the prophecy that Jeremiah gave, they were allowed to go back to rebuild the city and the temple in Jerusalem, right? And about 50,000 of them left Babylon. Only 50,000 because there were probably close to a million of people there in Babylon. Only 50,000 left and went to rebuild the temple. Okay? And so they started working, and, um, and it was difficult. Why was it difficult? Well, obviously, they didn't have modern equipment and everything. Everything was done by labor. But beyond that, there was a group of people there called the Samaritans. And they weren't really happy to have all these Jews come back and try to rebuild the temple. And so they made life really difficult for them. Right? They, they used sabotage, um, they used political influence, they even wrote a letter to the king saying, you know, these people, if you let them rebuild the temple, you know, they're going to cause trouble for you. And they made life really difficult for the Jews. And so, over the course of time, it, the Jews decided, well, you know, it's too difficult, right? I, we don't want, it, this, it's really hard. So, 
you know, maybe we need to um, just wait and do this some other time. And we can read about the story in the book of Haggai. So if you turn to the book of Haggai, uh, chapter 1, verse 2. See, the people started to build the temple, but they stopped. They went back to their own farms and their estates and started to rebuild the, the, the lives that they used to have before they were captives in Babylon. And God was not very happy about that. Here in Haggai, you can read about it. It says, verse 2, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple lie in ruins? See, God really wanted that temple to be built. He was not happy that the people had abandoned the rebuilding of the temple. Why, why did God want that temple to be rebuilt? Was it that important to have a you know, temple? Why, what was so important about that temple? Jesus, that's right. Jesus was going to come. Haggai said the glory of this latter house shall be greater than the former. Why? Was this second temple more beautiful than the one that Solomon built? No. But Haggai said the glory of this temple is going to be greater. Why? Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of the universe, himself was going to come and be in that temple. As a child, he was going to be dedicated in that temple. As a youth, he was going to come and learn about his mission. And then as the Messiah, he was going to come and teach people what God was really like. Because people had a wrong misconception, wrong conception about what God was like. And so Jesus was going to come to teach people what was God really like. And so the glory of the second house was going to be greater than the first one because the Son of God was going to be there. But there was a problem. People forgot. The people abandoned the work. So what was God to do? What did God do? Well, we could read about it in Haggai. It says, then, the Lord, then verse 3, Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you to dwell in your paneled houses and this, this temple lie in ruins? Therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into, in a bag with holes. Does that sound like your bank account? Sounds like my bank account. You know, your money goes in and phew, it's like it's gone, right? You know, we work and work and work and we don't seem to get anywhere. And the money just goes poof, Right? Earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build a temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Does that sound like God's a little frustrated with them? Yeah, I blew it away. Like, you know... God seemed like a, he's a little bit frustrated with his people, right? Because he, they had abandoned the purpose for which they had come to Jerusalem. 
you look for much, but it indeed it came to little and went... Oh, sorry, I read that already. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought upon the land, and on the mountains, and on the grain, and on the wine, and the oil, and whatever the ground brings forth on men, and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. So God brought an economic crisis upon the people. Not to punish them, but to wake them up. To help them remember what it is that they were doing there, right? Why were they there? Were they there to rebuild their house? To build their farms? No, they were called for a specific purpose, and that was to rebuild the temple. Did the people listen? Did the people listen? Yes, they did. Yes, if we read on further, they, they listened and they said, um, verse 13, Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke to the Lord, the message to the people saying, Oh, sorry, I, I went too far here. Um, verse 12, then, the, uh, then Zerubbabel, the son of uh, Shelatiel, and Joshua, the son of Zehoadak, the high priest, and all of the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. And then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke to the Lord, the message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? The people listened, and they finished rebuilding that temple. And of course, what what we know is that Jesus was able to come and be in that temple and that and indeed the glory of that second house that glory of the temple was greater was the greatest place ever because the son of god was there so what does that mean to us today though right so that's a nice story but how does that apply to us well about 170 years ago there was another group of people that were called out of babylon Right? They were called out of Babylon to rebuild the temple. What temple? Right? Our church was created. This mission, this this mission called Seventh Day Adventism was created to rebuild what what temple? This this building? Were we here to create churches? Is that what temple are we to rebuild? Well, Paul tells us that. We are the temple, right? We are the temple of the Holy Ghost. The Spirit of God lives in us, right? It was God's purpose. That whole building of the temple, the sanctuary in the Old Testament, was for one purpose. That was to help us understand that we are the temple. That God's purpose that was that God lives in us, right? And unless, until we understand that, that... That, that whole sanctuary thing was there to help us understand that we are incomplete. We are incomplete as a person, as a human being, without God living in us. We need that connection. And so, you know, uh, Paul says that the mystery of Christ is, sorry, the mystery of, uh, mystery uh, is Christ in you, the hope of glory, right? In Revelation 10, what does it say? That as the last trumpet is about to sound, the mystery of God will be finished. What is that, the mystery? Christ in us. Ellen White writes this. She said, 
it was God's purpose that every created being from the bright and holy seraph to man should be a temple for the indwelling of the creator. Even angels are temples of God, right? All created beings, sentient beings, we're incomplete unless God lives in us. She goes on to say that because of sin, our temple, we were no longer a place for that God could dwell. But because of God's, because of Christ's intermediation, because of Christ's blood, we're able to become that once again. And she said that that the temple in Jerusalem was supposed to be a reminder for all time that this is the purpose for God, that we are a temple for God to live in. And, and if you follow the analogy, right, when the Jews finished building the temple, what else did they have to do? They finished building the walls, the, build the city, right? Build the temple, and then you could build the city, right? And Isaiah had promised, they had prophesied these things. He said, the abundance of the sea will be converted unto thee, and the forces of the Gentiles shall come unto thee, and the city shall be called, and, and they shall be called the city of the Lord. Did the Gentiles come to the Jerusalem? No. See, they failed. They, they, they misunderstood. The Jews misunderstood their purpose, didn't they? Right? They built the walls, but what did they do with the walls? They closed the doors and tried to keep everybody out. Right? But the whole point of the walls was to bring them in. Keep those gates open. But the Jews misunderstood. But now it's our privilege. Right? We are the temple, and this church is the city. Right? And it's our privilege to have the Gentiles come to us. All those who want to learn, who want to believe about Jesus, they can come to us and learn about what it is to be a follower of Jesus. That was the purpose. And that's, that's the job that we have in front of us today. But there's a problem. You see, over the course of years, like I said, it's been about 170 years since we became a church. And difficulties have come about, you know, we've been preaching about the second coming of Jesus for a long time. And some of you are maybe second generation, third generation Adventists. You know, there are some fourth, there, 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 I think there are some fifth generation Adventists out there too, right? We've been preaching about the second coming of Jesus for a long time, haven't we? And it hasn't happened. Have some of us started to go, well, you know what? Maybe it's not time. It's just, it's not time to talk about second coming, right? You know, we, we'll talk about, you know, the love of Jesus and we'll talk about all these other things, but you know, the second coming thing, uh, we don't want to talk about that anymore because, you know, it, doesn't, it keeps not happening and, and we're, we're sort of embarrassed, aren't we? Maybe? Are we embarrassed to talk about it? We shouldn't be. But it seems like, you know, some of us are saying, well, it's not time. Just like the Jews said, well, it's not time to rebuild the temple. Some of us, perhaps, are more interested in our earthly home than we are in our heavenly home, just like the Jews. 
And so what is God to do? What did God do with the Jews of old? To get their attention. He sent an economic crisis, right? Well, you know, we as Adventists, we like signs. We're, we love studying prophecy. You know, Signs of the Times is a great magazine. Uh, we like to see things that are, we like to understand what's going on, right? And we, we get excited about prophecy sometimes. Um, last year we had, I don't know if you recognize this person here, but he, his name is Bishop Palmer. He's an Anglican bishop. And he started talking with Pope Francis about an ecumenical movement. And, and we got excited. Hey, you know, the Sunday laws might be happening. And, and oh, the, all these end time events are coming. But what happened? He died in a car accident. And that kind of went away. And now we're back going, well, maybe it's not time. Hmm. Right? Well, I want to share with you an interesting sign. I don't know if it's a sign, but some interesting uh, insights about the times that we live in. So uh, this man here, his name is Nikolai Kondratiev, and he was a Russian economist. He lived around the 1920s, and uh, he studied economic cycles and so on. And I don't know if any of you know about economy or economics at all, but normally when we think about economic cycles, you know, we have growth and we have recessions. You know, we live through that, right, every day. And uh, usually an economic cycle lasts about three to five years, right? Normally that's what we think about. But when he studied economics over a longer period of time, he saw that there was these great economic cycles that took a lot longer. Over 50 to 60 year period, um, these economic cycles would take place, right? And so he kind of characterized them as the seasons. You know, he had spring, summer. That's when the economies would be growing and doing really, really well. And then there was autumn, which was kind of, you know, things were plateauing and starting to slow down a little bit. And then there would be economic winter. Economic winter usually had, you know, a financial crash, depressions, often world war and regime changes. That's what an economic winter usually ended up with, right? And so these things took about 50 to 60 years to take place, right? And so he studied these long-term economic cycles and he actually mapped them out over the past, well, during his time, it was probably about 150 years. Um, Stalin didn't like him very much. He sent him to the gulags and then had him executed because his economic theories really conflicted with the, with the communist idea. But people today have continued on his work. They call him long waves, and they've continued on his work. So I'm going to show you a chart. Uh, this is not mine. This is somebody else. This is a secular company. They study this for economic and investing purposes. And this is their chart, so I borrowed that from them. And, um, and it shows you the economic cycles over the last 200 years or more. And again, th these are secular people. They have nothing to do with the church or anything like that. Um, and so here, the top line here is kind of the stock market, what the stock market has done over those 200 years. But this is the interesting line here. This is the economic cycle, right? And you can see that it's gone up and down over the last 200 years. So let's take a little bit of a closer look at this economic cycle, right? So here, 
we had this lowest point in 1789, and then we had the spring, summer, autumn, and then winter, and the winter ended in 1844. And again, another economic cycle ended in 1896, and so on and so forth, right? So we've had four economic cycles. Well, as a matter of fact, we're, we're sort of at the tail end of this, this last one, right? But as a Seventh-day Adventist, does this, is, is there anything in this chart that kind of jumps out at you? 1844, right? Yeah, of course. 1844, is that meaningful to us? Of course it is, right? The end of the 2,300-day prophecy, right? William Miller was preaching that Jesus was coming back in 1844, October 22nd. Of course, he had the date right. He had the event wrong. But he was very successful. People believed. And it wasn't just William Miller, but it was a worldwide movement. Other people had come to the same conclusion and were preaching about the second coming of Christ. And it ended in 1844. Why was William Miller so successful? Well, of course, you know, the power of God and, and the Holy Spirit was enabling him to do the things he did. But think about the economic circumstances that he was preaching in. Right? There was a severe economic downturn at the time. Right? When do people look to God? When things are going well or when things are not going well? Hmm, of course. Right? That's just human nature, isn't it? And things were not going well in the 10 years when William Miller was preaching. And people were ready to listen to a message that, had given, that was giving them a hope of something different than what they were experiencing in this present world. Right? Well, what about 1789? Is that meaningful to us? Anyone? No? Well, what happened in 1789? It was the start of the French Revolution, right? The French Revolution. What happened at the end of the French Revolution? Yeah, right? In 1798, the Pope was taken captive. And is there a prophecy that we have about 1798? Which one is that? The 1260-day prophecy, right? Yes. Yeah, the 1260-day prophecy ended right around this same time frame, just at the tail end of the French Revolution, right? What caused the French Revolution? A lot of dissatisfaction of the way things were going, right? Economic downturn. Um, the people were being oppressed, and the people rose up. What else happened in that time frame? Well, you can see right there, in 1776... We had the establishment of the United States, right? Right? Was there a prophecy about that? Yes? The, which one was it? The That's right. That's right. Yes. The two horn the two horned beast. It looked like a lamb but spoke like a dragon, yeah, okay. So is that interesting there that all of these events would again happen at the bottom one of these cycles? Okay, so here, now we come, uh, one cycle. What about this one, 1896? Is that era significant to us? Is that era, no? Anybody ever heard of what happened in 1888? What happened in 1888? 
Oh, oh, what? I heard somebody say something. Jesus was what? He was trying to come, right? Mrs. White says the loud cry was being given. The Holy Spirit was, the latter rain was about to be poured out, right? In Minneapolis. But what happened? The church wasn't ready. The church was not ready. And so the whole process stopped, right? God was trying to come back in 1888. He was making preparations to come. But it didn't happen, right? Well, let's look at this a little bit closer, okay? So 1888, the beginning of the loud cry, and it didn't happen. But let's understand this period a little bit better, okay? So, again, the 1888, this time frame right around here was towards the bottom of this, sorry, back here, wrong point. Right here was around the end of this economic cycle, right? Things were in a downturn. Economies were in ruins. Let's better understand that. What happened? Well, in 1873, there was something called the Panic of 1873. Okay? When we think about the Great Depression, um, in the United States, we think about the 1930s, right? right? Well, the longest depression in the United States was not the 1930s, but it was actually in 1873. It started in 1873. It lasted five years, a five-year-long depression. And even after that, the country kept going in and out of recessions for the next almost 20 years. It was a very bad time for them. What sparked this? Well, the long depression, you know, we were, they had just come out of the Civil War, right? And the economy was in ruins. And they started rebuilding the nation, right? They poured lots of money into the South to try and rebuild it. And then one of the things that started to develop was the railroad, right? And they've started building railroads, crisscrossing the country, because that was, it was good for the economy, right? But what happened? Well, everybody got excited. Hey, you can make a lot of money investing in railroads, right? So people started investing lots and lots of money. Banks started getting into financing railroads, and they built tons and tons of railroads. And guess what they did? They built too many. And because they built too many, uh, they couldn't afford them, and they had a bank crash, right? This bank named J. Cook & Company failed because they had invested too much money into the railroads, and they no longer could afford, and they couldn't get, uh, they couldn't get their loans repaid. And so here's a, here's a drawing from a newspaper. You can see the date, October 4th, 1873. You know, they're depicting the bank run. Right? People were rushing to the bank to try and get their money out. But it was too late. The bank was closed. And for the next 10 days, the whole U.S. Econ uh, US banking system, uh, Wall Street, everything was shut down for 10 days. Um, and then in trying to try, uh, fix the system, the uh, U.S. government made the Coinage Act of 1873, which was they were uh, taking back all the silver coins out of circulation and the intent was they were going to try and print money. Um, another interesting thing that happened was, at that time, was equine influenza. Right? We've seen, there's been all kinds of different flus, right? We've had the bird flu, we've had the swine flu, we've had uh, you know, all kinds. Of, this equine influenza, though, was the horse flu. But this was actually for horses, right? It didn't affect people. It was 
it was a flu that impacted horses. And so over that year, in 17, uh, 1873, all the horses got sick. Almost 90% of the horses in, in the United States and Canada were sick. They couldn't even stand up. They couldn't do any work. Well, you know, when you think about horsepower, in those days, literally, everything was horsepower, right? Yeah? You know, horsepower wasn't something about your car engine. You know, horsepower was really the power that, you know, made things go. Um, and all the horses were sick. In fact, like the U.S. Cavalry and the Indians were fighting that year, but they were all on foot because all their horses were sick. But we know, Ellen White tells us, that the devil's been working in his laboratory. Right? And what has he been doing in his laboratory? A lot of rotten stuff, trying to figure out all the different things, illnesses and pestilences that he might unleash on us, right? Well, um, and so all these things contributed contributed to the Panic of 1873 and the long depression that happened then. Okay? So what happened? So people were depressed, people were out of jobs, and they turned to drinking and gambling and all those kinds of things happened. Right? Um, there was a great decline in the morals of the country. And so what some people had an idea, that was, we've got to fix this country. Right? We can't let things go, keep going downhill like this. So a group of women got together and they formed what was called the Christian Women's Temperance Union. And they had the great idea. They said, you know, we've got to speak up against drinking and against gambling, against abuse. You know, we've got to fix this country. And they were right. They, you know, those were the things that needed to be done. And so they got together with this uh, young senator named... Um, William Blair from Massachusetts, and they tried to put, to put through a prohibition bill, right? Against, and closed down all the saloons. Right? It's a good idea, right? But they had another idea. They said, you know what? You know what would be really good for the country is if we had a common day of worship. Isn't that a great idea? Yeah. On the surface, maybe, but of course, we as Seventh-day Adventists thought that wasn't such a great idea, right? Yeah, and so the bill, so the Women's Christian Temperance Union actually helped get petitions signed. They had about 15 million signatures on this petition. And you say, well, 15 million, that's not that big of a deal, except there was only about 30 million people in the country at that time. That's a lot of signatures, right, percentage-wise. Um, and so William Blair took this bill to the U.S. Senate and said, we need to have a common day of worship to help this country rebuild its moral roots. Of course, we know the story. I think some of you know the story anyways. We sent our own pastor, A.T. Jones, Alonzo T. Jones, to the Senate to speak out against this um, bill. And he successfully defended uh, our position, and so there was no Sunday law at the time. And this was in 1888. Right? When we think about what's going, what went on in 1873 to 1888, does that look kind of similar to what's going on today? 
Yeah? Right? Are we having an economic downturn? Do we see decline in morals? Do we see a very strong religious right-wing movement starting? Do we see illnesses and pestilences, weird things that we've never heard before? Ebola? We see all those things, all of those elements, ingredients are, again, in place, right? And I like this, what uh, Ellen White wrote in testimony. She says, as God's people review the past, they should see that the Lord is ever repeating his dealings. They should understand the warnings given and should beware not to repeat their mistakes. 1888, did we make a mistake? We did. We let our pride and our, and our arrogance and our, you know, our desire for earthly power get in the way of doing what God wanted us to do. So let's get back to this chart. Is this an interesting chart? Is this in insightful? Um, so then 1889 came by at the bottom of this cycle. We passed 1888, right? In 1903, Ellen White had a vision. And in this vision, she said, she wrote this vision as well, it's called What Might Have Been, right? See, in 1903, so this period, this next period here, right? What happened in this next period, right? So, you know, we've had every, every cycle ended with some kind of a major prophetic event. Is that right? Yeah? You know? But what about this next period? Well, Ellen White oops, commented that it was kind of too late. Right? She wrote, again, she wrote this uh, article that said what might have been. She had this vision. She said, one day I was writing in the work that might have done, been done at the last general conference if the men in the position of trust had followed their will and obeyed God. And he went on, she went on to describe this time when people were repenting and uh, you know, they're, they're asking each other for forgiveness and, and forgiving each other and this, the work of revival that the Holy Spirit was, going to, was supposed to do in this time, she saw in a vision, except she realized this was not real. It was only what might have been had we allowed the Holy Spirit to do the work in our hearts. And so by 1903, she said it was too late. Well, what, what do you mean too late? Can't God come back anytime he wants? Yeah, he could, I guess. He could. But what happened, what happened in this era between 19, the end of the turn of the century and the next 60 or 70 years? Well, we look, let's look at it. We had World War I. We had World War II. We had the Russian Revolution. We had the Communist Revolution in China. We had Korean War, we had Vietnam War, we had Rwanda, we had the Congo, we had India. Uh, there were so many wars and, and revolutions over that period of time that the world was literally closed, wasn't it? The, the, the doors were closed for the gospel work. It was a very, very difficult time, right? We had, we had huge operations in China which we had to pull back from during that time. Um, it was a closed period of time, right? And it was almost 
you know, in my estimation, it was almost impossible to spread the gospel to the world during that 60 years because of all the wars and the revolutions and things that went on. Did God know that was going to happen? Was God trying to come back in 1888 because he wanted to avoid all of that bloodshed and all that turmoil and all of the suffering that went on? Hundreds of millions of people dying in very terrible ways. Was God trying to avoid that? I think so. I mean, this is only my guess. I don't know God's mind. But I think so. He, want, he wanted to come back before then. But it wasn't possible because we weren't ready. We weren't ready to go out there and get the work done. So, we're here. And my pointers, oh, there we go. In this last cycle now, right? Um, and these people, and again, this is not me, this is other people, they're predicting that the end of this cycle is going to be 2020. Now, don't anybody get me wrong, I'm not saying that Jesus is coming back in 2020, okay? Make that clear, right? But what we do understand is that this economic cycle is coming to an end, Right? And what happened in those first three times those economic cycles ended? Right? It was, it was, the time was ripe. Right? The message that I want to get to you is that it's harvest time. Is it not? The time is ripe. Right? We, we got to stop saying, you know, it's not time. It is time. Right? You know, we go back and, we, you know, a lot of our parents, our grandparents may have been talking about Christ's second coming, and maybe they were a bit early, right? But that was okay. Sometimes God lets us do things. He doesn't reveal everything to us right away because it would be discouraging. But we need to carry on, right? Yes. Yes, yeah, it certainly would, wouldn't it? Yes. Um, but we have to understand it's harvest time, right? Because when, when you're, anybody here gardeners or farmers, right? Do you, when, do you pick your, when do you pick your tomatoes? When they're ready, right? God can come back anytime he wants, but when is he going to come back? When the harvest is ready, right? When, when, the, when the earth is ripe, when the conditions are ripe for the for the most, the largest harvest. Isn't that right? It's harvest time. And so we come to the uh, text that we wrote, read earlier today. Let's turn to Thessalonians. Right? Let's understand what he's saying. Thessalonians, chapter, 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verse 1-5. Right? But the day of the Lord, sorry, but the concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, I have no need that I should write to you. For you, you, know, you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. Does, it, does God come as a thief in the night? Does he come as a thief in the night? If you're not prepared, right? No, because for us, he says, for when they say peace and safety... Then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. That's interesting, right? 
Do pregnant women not know that they're in labor? <laughs> right? You know, it's funny that he writes that way, right? Because I think he's trying to make a point. Isn't he not? Right? Who's the one that's usually surprised when the baby comes? It's the husband who's been blissfully unaware of sleeping. Right? The woman certainly is not unaware of, of the uh, labor pains that are going on, right? Um, but you, brethren, are not in darkness. That's us, right? We're not in darkness so that they should overtake you as a thief. Is God trying to tell us what's coming? Does God want us to know what is going on? Right? He does want us to know and be aware. You are sons of light and daughters. Sons and daughters of light. Right? Sons of the day. We are not of the night or the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. So God wants to come back. I think the time is ripe. Right? If that economic cycle is accurate, and I think it is, you know, we just have to really look around us, right? Is the world getting better or is it getting worse? Right? And are we headed... You know, like that economic tsunami, right? Everything seems to be quiet right now. You know, we're venturing out onto that beach, yes. thinking everything's okay. Oh, man. You know? But what's coming, what's coming is, is frightening. But there's a problem. Jesus said, the harvest is great. Yeah, he's having a work problem, right? Isn't that kind of weird since we have so much unemployment today that there should be lots of workers, but somehow there's few workers, right? And here's the problem. Here's why. Because I say I'm rich and I'm increased in goods and I have need of nothing, right? I don't know that I'm naked and blind and poor and miserable and wretched, What is God's remedy for this? What, what does God say? I heard repentance. Yes, repentance. But what, what does he say? Well, let's read it. Go to Revelation 3. Okay? Revelation chapter 3. Okay, is it just repentance? He says, I counsel you to... This is verse 18. I counsel you... To buy from me gold tried in the fire, that you may be rich, white garments that you may be clothed, and the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may not that you may see. And then verse nineteen comes As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. What does it look like when God rebukes us for thinking that we're rich? What did he do to the Israelites when they stopped? building the temple. He sent a wake-up call, didn't he? Yeah. What did he do to the prodigal son? When, I know it's only a parable, but what did he do for the prodigal son? What operations did he put in place to influence the child back to God? A famine, an economic crisis, right? Seems time and again that's God's M.O., Right? 
we like this, you know, we like verse 18. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and dine with him. We love the picture of that Jesus, right? He's patiently standing there, knocking on the door, patiently, right? And we often think, oh, you know, Jesus wants to save us, right? But maybe we get a diff- little bit different view here. Because who's behind that door? Isn't it all the workers? Right? He says the workers, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. Right? Where are all the workers? Well, they're behind that door thinking everybody's, everything's okay. We're rich, so everything's okay. Right? Is God getting a little frustrated with us, maybe? He's knocking on that door, and he's going, come on, guys, the harvest is great. I need some workers. Right? So God knocks on the door. If we don't listen, what's he going to do? Is he going to just go, oh, I tried. They're not listening. Sorry. Right? Is that, would God just abandon us? Would the God of the Old Testament just kind of go, okay, well, you know, I tried, but, oh, well, they weren't listening. Or would he knock a little louder? Right? And would he knock a little louder and will he start beating on that door? Not just because of us, right? Because we're the workers. And there's a great harvest out there. And maybe we're a little bit too interested in this world. We're a little bit too interested in our earthly homes and not so not interested enough in our heavenly homes. And so God, so Jesus is knocking on that door, hoping that some of his workers will wake up. In, jo- in the book of Job, Joel, sorry, he promises that the Holy Spirit will be poured out to do that final work, right? We, we, love, this, we love this text. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. You know, your old men shall dream dreams. Right? We know that text, right? Joel 2, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. We love that promise in Joel chapter 2. What's in Joel chapter 1? Well, let's turn to Joel chapter 1. Joel chapter 1. Hear this, you elders, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days, or even the days of your father? Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children, their children, their grandchildren. I'm going to skip down to verse 8. Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of your youth. The grain offering and the drink offering have been cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn who ministered to the Lord. The field is wasted. The land mourns. The grain is ruined. The new wine is dried up. The oil fails. Be ashamed, you farmers. Wail, you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because of the harvest of the field has perished. Verse 13. Gird yourselves and lament, you priests. Wail, you ministers, before the altar. Come lie all night in sackcloth. You who minister to my God for the grain offering and the drink offering 
are withheld from the house of your God. Is God saying again that there will be a famine, an economic crisis? And is that going to be before or after the pouring of the Holy, outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Before, before right? Well, it's God's way to wake us up because we're not ready to receive that outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Our temple is not ready, is it? Right? We rely on ourselves far too much. We rely on money. We rely on our own ability to earn a living. Right? We, we're too self-confident. And God needs to teach us that we have to be fully reliant on him. And, and so we, we have some painful lessons that we are going to have to learn because we've become too self-confident. And so Joel says that there's going to be a famine. But the good news is that once we go through that famine, that God can, God can pour out his Holy Spirit and we can do the things that you know the disciples did in the day of Pentecost, right? Speaking tongues, heal the sick, preach the gospel. Wouldn't that be a glorious day? Yes? Will that be worth will that be worth the trials that we go through today? Will that be worth accepting the rebuke and chastening that God is going to give us because we're not ready to receive his, temp, uh, receive his spirit? Right? I know it's a hard message to hear. Right? When, I, when I understood it, I, you know, I had to change everything. Right? It, made you, it makes us really think about where we are today. Right? Um, but the end, the end is going to be glorious because God will be able to use us in amazing ways. And as Paul says, you know, the, the little bit of suffering that we have today in this world is nothing, nothing compared to what God, the glory that God is going to show to us and show through us, right? I'm just going to leave you with one last text. Oh, sorry, a couple of things. You know, Ellen White wrote this. She said, The Lord does not now work to bring many souls into the truth because the church members who have never been converted are those who were once converted but have backslidden. What influence would these unconsecrated members have on new converts? They, would they make of no effect the God-given message which his people are to bear? God is not bringing people into the church yet. We have to build the temple before we can build the city, right? Or in plain terms, we have to fix our soul temple before God's going to fill these pews. You know, there's going to come a day when there's not going to be a seat left open. There's going to be standing room only in this church, right? It's going to be overflowing, but not yet. Not yet. But it will come. The time will come, right? But we have to be ready to accept God's will in our lives first. When we build the city, when we build the temple, we can rebuild the city too. The revival of true godliness is the greatest and most urgent of all of our needs. To seek this should be our first work. There must be earnest effort to obtain the blessings of the Lord. Not because God is not willing to bestow his blessing upon us, but because we are unprepared to receive it.
I, just, I do want to say one thing, though. Sometimes when we talk about revival, you know, oftentimes we, we look at other people and go, oh, we need, to, we need to fix everybody, right? You know? But it's not about fixing other people, right? No, no, no. It's about ourselves, right? We need to look at our own lives because sometimes we, 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 want, we want to see revival so badly we go and start becoming very judgmental, right? And that's not, that's not what this is about. It's about fixing our own temple, right? We're not to judge other people. You know, that's not to say that we can't help others to see, you know, see the light. We need to guide other people gently. But it's about fixing ourselves, right? Not about being everybody else's judge and jury. This is the last text I want to leave you with. You know, it's a, again, it's a very uh, well-known text. But we often don't consider the, the verse 13. We always read verse 14, but we don't consider verse 13. Right? If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and will seek my face and will turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. We love that text, right? We've, we've said that many times. But what's verse 13 say? If I shut up heaven and there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if God sends us an economic crisis to wake us up, What's our response? Humble ourselves and pray. If we will do that, God promises to heal our land, to heal us as a church, as a community. And then he could pour out his spirit and the glorious, you know, the church triumphant will rise up. And that's my hope, right? We are living in a time that our parents, our grandparents would have loved to be in, right? The pioneers of our church, the apostles, they were all looking for that day, and it's our privilege to be living in that day. It's not going to be an easy path, though. It's not an easy path, but it's worth it. It's going to be worth it. And God's going to do amazing things to us, right? And so it's my prayer today that each one of you will carefully consider you know these words consider the times that we live in and say you know what can i do to draw closer to god and let him work his will through me and, and when we do have those reproofs in our lives that will come you know let's let's accept those judgments from god and ask him to help us to move forward. Because uh, it's all for God's glory and honor. Amen. Um, let's, let's bow our heads for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we stand here reproved for our worldliness, for thinking this world is our home when we know well it's not, Lord. Um, we've become a little bit distracted We'll sidetrack from the purpose for which you have set us asi- set us aside, and we ask for your forgiveness, Amen. Lord. And Lord, we we accept whatever reproof and chastisement that you may bring to us, Lord. We pray that you will you will uh, 
you'll take it easy on us. Lord, but give us, give us the strength and the ability to withstand because we know it'll be for your own glory and honor, Lord. And that's our purpose, Lord, to glorify you, to lift you up, to help others to see your loveliness so that they will come to you as well. And so we, we ask for these blessings and this grace in Christ's precious name. Amen. Thank you.